Well, my, uh, my normal MO is to tell you to open to a specific passage, but we're going to be in a number of different places tonight. And so if you want to open to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in that general area, we'll be there. We'll also be in the, in the New Testament but we've come to the, the, the second to last, I guess, time together in our, in our summer sermon series, specifically related to, to creation and culture. And we're calling this Applied Anthropology um, because we're, we're listening to how God created human beings and we're learning, we have learned about the, the, the fall, how that's affected us marred us um, beyond recovery apart from the intervention of Jesus Christ and God uh, recreating us, making us new creatures in Christ Jesus. Um, And then how that, how that, that, that plays out, both how you take the Bible um, after you have been recreated in Christ and then you, you, you properly order your life. You, you bring it back to the original design, if you will, by obeying what Scripture says. Scripture guides us in that. Or, um, it's a, Scripture can be a guide to show us how human beings have, have um, went in all different types of, of perverse uh, directions. And, and so my desire tonight is to, is to set us up for, uh, for the Q&A that's coming in two weeks during our, uh, during our family gathering. Um, and so tonight, I'm, I'm going to talk about the effect of the fall and, and, and some ways that you, you see the, uh, the fall of, of man um, reverberating through our society. And if we have time at the end, you'll be thinking about this ahead of time, uh, I may ask you uh, what you want, uh, what you want to, to talk about next Sunday. Do an open Q and A, but it may help you if you help me uh, in telling me some some specific areas that that you're itching and you want uh, you want me to want me to address because we have a limited amount of time and quite frankly the perversions that you see in society are are numerous. Um, so where can I help you the most as you are thinking through uh, specific things? I am. I'm not the world's pastor, I'm not Lynchburg's pastor, I'm your pastor. So I want to, to apply the scriptures to you know, what, what you're, you're dealing with. And everything that we've been doing up to this point has actually been laying a foundation. We had to do that. We had to go through Genesis 1, we had to go through Genesis 2, uh, and uh, at least an overview of it. And then we had to go through the detail of Genesis 3 in order to, to talk about what what we have tonight and, and, and the next time that, that we're together. We have to do that in order to gain a biblical framework so we can rightly interpret the things that we, that we see around us. I mean, if you don't understand creation and you don't understand the fall from God's perspective, then, then you're left wandering in this wasteland of, of human madness to try to make sense of, of things. And it, it, is, it is maddening. Um, and like we learned this morning, God gave us a Bible so we don't have to guess. I mean, it was His communication. And, and Scripture addresses everything that you see in society today. I mean, there's a specific command in the, the Old Testament law, in the Mosaic law, that says men are not to dress like women and women are not to dress like, 
like men, and that's an abomination to the Lord. So cross-dressing and transgenderism is not anything new. It, it, was, it was all the way back during the time of, of Moses, and so was homosexuality, so was uh, uh, promiscuity, and so was uh, women trying to lead men and men trying to, uh, uh, to check out and not love their, their wives, everything that you see. Um, clearly, there is an accelerant that has been added to, to all of that perversion in our society. And even as we'll mention again tonight, that's an evidence of Romans 1, which is an evidence of God's judgment. You can tell when God has judged a person or a people or a society or a culture uh, by, by, by the fact that he removes the speed bumps. So there is no, there's no new depravity. There's no, as you look at, at the, the fall of, of, of America and all the things that are coming out in our culture, that's, that's not, not anything new. What it is an evidence of is God taking his hand back and, and allowing his, you know, the, the judgment to come because of, of, of repeated rejection uh, and the callousness of, of, of the human uh, conscience. And sadly, what, rather than going to the Bible, what we see around us, though, is, you know, as people are in mass confusion, there's uh, many contradictions in the chaos that, uh, that, that results. I mean, I, I don't have to tell you this, but, but I'll just remind you, you're, you're blessed people, you really are. You're blessed to be regardless of your family background or the mess that you came from, like, like me being 24 when I was saved, you, you sitting here tonight, um, having the gospel, having a Bible, having parents or grandparents or a witness around you, that, that's, that, that, that even, even, even if you're not saved here tonight, it sanctifies you in some way, it salts you in, in, in some way, as Romans 13 you know, tells us. Um, the, the authorities that God has established or the, the light that, that we have been given has an effect on us. It doesn't, doesn't transform our hearts, but it does restrain the evil that, that is there. To use the analogy I, I have before, I mean, how does, you know, how does a, a, a nine-year-old child in inner city Chicago uh, you know, shoot uh, his sister or, or, or his neighbor? Is that nine-year-old more sinful or more wicked than a, you know, a, a nine-year-old suburbanite uh, that, you know, that, that looks nice and smells nice? I mean, no, the same depravity is in there. But his environment has affected him. It's like yeast in the dough, the Bible says. Sin is like yeast in our hearts. And so if you take a dough ball and you allow that dough ball uh, to, to rise uh, uh, in the refrigerator versus taking that dough ball with the same amount of yeast and putting it on your porch banister in 96 degree humid heat, it's going to rise different ways. But the same flour and the same amount of yeast is in there. And so, so our environment does affect, does restrain or, or, or remove the restraints of the depravity and the sin that's in our hearts. Only Jesus Christ can take that sin away. Only He can remove that and give you power to overcome the, overcome the flesh. And so that's what you see. And you see an accelerant of that. And if you don't believe me, you can just, just watch some of the cultural apologists on YouTube or, or otherwise and just see how maddening the minefield is. I mean, I, mean you don't, I don't really even have to go over these, but I will. I mean, they're medical doctors, medical doctors trained in biology. The guys, that, the gals that you go to, to say, fix my physical body, 
those individuals won't even or can't identify the difference between a male and a female because of ideology or, you know, or, or otherwise. I mean, you have the, the second ranking person in health and human services is a man that dresses like a woman. And I don't even mean one that it's hard to tell. You know, there are some it's hard to tell. Is that a man or is that a woman? It's not hard to tell. That's a man. And just to remind you, if you don't know, the United States Secretary of Health and Human Services is the head of the United States Department of Health. I mean, that's the person who advises the President of the United States on all matters health in our country. And the second person in command there is transgender. You have the Supreme Court who ruled on that same-sex couples can marry you and adopt children, position that our government at one point promoted laws that restricted both. You, you have states passing laws that allow boys to use girls' bathrooms and commercial businesses refusing to do business in any state that, that stands against that. You have a biological male swimmer that was put up by the NCAA for Women of the Year, Woman of the Year Award. I mean, that, that sounds like, you know, a parody. That sounds like Babylon B. But it's, but it's reality, and I, I could go on, but, but I don't need to. You're, you're immersed in, in this every day, so you know it all too well. Well, how do we get here, and what's the solution to that? I mean, we'll surely not cover all of the details in one sermon or in, in a Q&A, but, but the simple answer is, is where we've been. You, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And we've been going at this answer in two parts. You lay the foundation of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. If you're dealing with anyone who, is, who has been engulfed by, by all of the, the false philosophies, where do you take them? This is where you take them. You take them back to Genesis 1 and, and, and 2. They say, well, well, they don't believe in the Bible. They, they don't believe in creation. That's all you've got. You, 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 all you have is the revelation of God, and you allow the revelation of God to do its work in the human heart. It's not your job to convince them that the Bible is, is true. You believe the Bible is true, and then you take them there, and you then allow the Spirit of God to take the the sword of the Spirit, and, and, and do that work. So you go back to creation. Same place you go in a mission situation where nobody's heard of Jesus Christ or anything else. Where do you take somebody who's never heard the gospel, has no concept of God? You, you take them back to creation. You establish that there is a creator because if there is a creator, then that creator has rights over his creation, and you are his creation. And then you take him to Genesis 3 which explains how everything got off, got off track. Now you have them set up for, for the answer, the solution, which is, which is the gospel. Most of the time, they can see the effects. Like for me, I, I knew I was a sinner. You didn't have to tell me that, that I had consequences in my life from my own decisions. I already knew I was a sinner. What somebody needed to tell me was I was the reason for the consequences of my life. Why and that God wanted to, to get me out of that and actually had done something in the gospel to, you know, to deliver me. And we saw that the Bible, what the Bible taught about creation in, in the world and, and God's masterpiece. And now in this second part of the series, we, 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 
we've looked at the event that stands at the headwaters of all of the, all of the issues, and the Bible provides this straightforward explanation of Genesis 1 and 2, and it's just as straightforward about where the problems came from. Those problems that seem so confusing in our, in our upside-down world. And on the heels of the creation narrative, Genesis 3 introduces the, you know, this, this, this event that affects the rest of, of, of human history and this informs us of the source of all the brokenness in, in our world. I mean, we live outside of the garden. I can't repeat that enough. There are thorns and thistles. There are also, there's also perverse sexuality. There's also gender confusion. There's also promiscuity. There's also homosexuality. There's also contradictions in marriages. There's crooked things that cannot be made straight. And amongst that wreckage, God gives us the truth of his word and the gospel of Jesus Christ to navigate those crooked roads. That's all you need. You need the truth. You need to believe the truth. And you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, that's the nuclear option. Churches and people looking for all of these different you know, bullets to put in their gun and how do I handle this and what do I do there and how do I attract people and how do I change people. You, the nuclear option, all you have is the word of God and the gospel and that's all you need in order to transform people's lives. And that's the work that God does. So we saw the four devastating declines to that that described the, the, the fall of man. There was this reversal of creation's order. There was the actual rebellion that took place. There was a recognition through the creator's questions, and there was the, the repercussions. We said, if you wanted to summarize Genesis 3, and if I was doing that for somebody who was caught in, you know, outside of, uh, of church or, or, or in some type of sin's mess, I, I would say to them, Genesis 3 describes a reversal of everything that's good. We saw God create and God designed. It's, it's, it's going away from that. And the first couple takes that and just smashes it to the ground. And we're still dealing with the, the pieces today. This couple was made in God's image and went from leading creation to following the creature. They went from enjoying the creator's wisdom and fellowship to, to choosing an anti-wisdom and then went from delightful communion with their maker and each other to shame and separation. So how do you apply this, this post-fall anthropology? I mean, what issue do, do, do you tackle? You could talk about any number of, uh, of uh, cultural counterfeits that are, that are in conflict with the biblical creation. But, but I think sexuality is likely the most predominant and the, the most current. I mean, how does the fall this reversal, manifest in gender roles? How does the fall manifest in gender expression? How does the fall manifest in human sexuality? I mean, that seems to be what, what, what's all around us that, that's being pushed, and sometimes you have a difficulty figuring out what, what, what to answer. I mean, I got an email this past week from a, from a lawyer and this lawyer was representing a Christian organization, um, and he had his preferred pronouns at the bottom, he, his. 
What do you do? If you're a Christian and you're working somewhere and the person that you're working with is a man and they ask you to call them her or something more bizarre like them, you say, what does that even mean? You know, and, and your company mandates that, that you do that. How do you, how do you, how do you navigate that? Well, what, what do you do? So now with creation, the creation story as, as a backdrop and the fall as the, as the perversion of it, um, let's see how anthropology is, is, is applied in, in light of that. I, I think that you could probably summarize the predominant perversions related to sexuality It's rooted in the fall in, in three categories. Probably add to these. I think there's a, there's a distortion of gender identity. There's an alteration of marital roles. You could also call that gender roles. I think those two things go together. And then you could also say that there's a perversion of human sexuality. And wow, I mean, you could do who knows how many sermons on that, you know, on that, on that last one. A distortion of gender identity, an alteration of marital roles, and a perversion of human sexuality. Let's look at the... The first one here, the first predominant perversion in our world related to sexuality is, a, is the distortion of gender identity. And it's distorted from the, from the good design that, that God made that, that's clearly spelled out in Genesis 1 and 2. And you can clearly see the distortion in our, in our culture. I mean, being male and female are, are distinct parts of God's creation. And he declared both of them are, are good. Declared both of them are good. I don't know what's going on there, guys. Genesis 1.26. I had you turn there, so let's, let's look at Genesis 1.26. You, you know this passage. Then God said, let us make man in our image According to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, of, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I mean, everything up to this point in the creation story has been setting up for this creative work. It's all decoration for this formation that's, that, that's about to happen. God the Trinity now says he will personally create uh, an atom. A human being, as we call it. And, they, and, and they're going to be created in God's image. And that's going to be very different from the rest of, of creation. But this is just a statement of intent. Notice it says, let us make. It doesn't say that they, they did. This is here's the intent to, to do that. You have some kind of dialogue here, as we said, between the, the God's having within the Trinity, or it's a plural statement mentioning His power and His, and his position. Verse 27 is, is actually the act. Look at, look at verse 27. Here's the actual creative act. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So verse 26 introduces the, the imago Dei, and then in verse 27, he, he applies it. Actually carries it out. And the word bara or create is used three times in verse 27. It's, the repetition is to communicate clearly that this, the making of, of, of human beings and the making of human beings as male and female is, a, is an act of God, not evolution. It says he created them. 
And then he defines what he means, two distinct sexes that both represent him. And, and so there's no confusion. The Hebrew for male and female is, is the word that expresses a particular sexuality. It's, it's not a general term. It's a specific term. The passage tells us who is created in the, in the image of God, both men and women, both males and females. Men and women are not created with part of God's image. They're not a puzzle that goes together. They're not created, men are not created with more of it than women. They both possess it. And that's very different from the creation of, of animals, even though they were also created with, with two sexes. And you'll hear people refer to that. Well, animals do these certain things, and so because we're evolutionary creatures, then you know, somehow that, that makes it okay. I mean, I don't know about you, but, but I don't want to use animals as, as a basis of my morality. But, but culture does that. God says there are clearly biological and physiological differences between males and females. And, they, and he made them that way. They were made unique. And those differences are not happenstance, but part of God's design. And they're part of God's design so they can fulfill the mandates that the Lord has given to, to each one of them. I mean, He made them in this form, male and female, so they can carry out the function, which is the commands that, that, that He gave to both of them, some specific to Adam and then some specific to Eve. And because they were given these divine mandates that were, that were unique to each one, He created them fit to carry those out. Uh, look at Genesis 2.15. Do I have that up there? Yeah, Genesis 2.15 and 18. Remember, chapter 1 is creation in general. Chapter 2 is zooming in on, on God's masterpiece. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So now you get some idea of what the man was created to do. He's, he's to work. He's to protect. He's to tend and then if you drop down to verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. And that doesn't just mean be alone in general. That means to be alone in the work that he's giving him to do. How do we know that? Because he says, I will make him a helper suitable for him. Not just somebody to be with him, but somebody to help him fulfill God's mandate, God's commands that, that the Lord's given him. Suitable to do what? To help him in what God commanded Adam to do. So Adam was to watch over, he was to subdue, he was to work, he was to protect, protect the garden and tend to it, and he was to, to, to have dominion over the earth. Those commands were, were given to, to Adam. But Genesis 2.18 says Eve was then created with, with a purpose of her own. Those purposes, her purpose was not independent, but it was dependent Upon, upon Adam's. And Adam was not independent from God. He was dependent upon, upon God. And that's all rooted in, in creation. Eve was created, created to be Adam's helper in fulfilling Adam's tasks. And so she was made to help him do what God commanded him to do. And she was the, the mother of all living. You, you can look at Genesis 3.20. Meaning she was created to bear children. Her role in being fruitful and multiply the command that that God gave her. Genesis 3.20 this is at the end of the fall, but it's, it's an echo of what, what, what Eve was, was supposed to do. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the, the living. 
And she was the mother of all the living, not, not because of the fall or in the curse. She was that before the curse. And with all, within all of those statements, within the fact that, that God made human beings, both male and female, to bear His image, the fact that He made them distinctly male and distinctly female, and then He gave them, he gave them commands, He gave them functions to, to, because of that form, within all of that lies the, the, what, what masculinity and, and, and femininity means. I mean, Genesis 1 and 2 describe for us what it looks like to be male and female at, at its core. And then you, you can go to other passages in Scripture and, and flesh that out. Um, but you always go back to this starting point as a, as a backdrop, like the New Testament often does. I mean, turn over to, to Titus 2. You know this passage as well. But there are, there are creative expressions here. For, for men and women. Titus 2 spells out how we can fulfill some of these, some of these principles. I don't think I have this. I think it's really long. Yeah, you have to turn to Titus. Titus 2. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine... Older men are to be temperate and dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in, 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 in perseverance. There's only race, what, what, a, what an older man is, biologically or, or, or creatively. Sort of the ways that you flesh that out, the ways in which God intends men to, to, to behave or to operate. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. And now you're back to some bedrock things. To be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, the, urge the young men to be sensible in all things, to show yourself uh, to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will, not be, put to, uh, will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. A number of those things are, are gender-specific expressions related to, to creation. And a lot of times, whenever the New Testament gives commands related to any gender, gender it, it refers, back to, refers back to creation. Again, another passage that, that you know, we've been through this one, but... First Timothy 2, when Paul is dealing with the issues in the, in the church, he says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but, but to remain quiet. And if you remember, when we went through that passage, he's talking about being the, uh, an official teacher in the church or an elder in the, in the church. And the second half of that, of that verse qualifies the first. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I don't allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority, but to remain quiet. Those, those two verses explain one another. And, and then notice he goes back to creation. For it was Adam who was first created and then, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children. They'll be preserved from the stigma of the fall by raising godly seed. 
2 Timothy 3 shows us what a culture looks like whenever all these things are, are denied. Difficult times that will come when men will be lovers of self and money and boastful and arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, and the list goes on and on and on, and you see all of this in society. As scripture also talks about the passivity of, of men in 1 Timothy 2 in the beginning and the rebellion of women, and that was which was in Ephesus, and, and the rebellion in Corinth, first the head covering passage refers back to creation. What I'm saying is it's not difficult to see what the Bible says about being male and female. It's not hard. The issue is people have a hard time hearing what it clearly says, right? I mean, there's no controversy in Scripture about sexuality. There's no controversy in Scripture about, about masculinity or femininity or, or marriage or, or sexual expression. In fact, the distinctions between the, se- the sexes are actually necessary for marriage and physical sexuality, which is the area that you see a predominant perversion. So I would say the second predominant perversion related to sexuality is the, is the alteration of gender roles. Again, I think you can say marital roles because I think those Genesis 1 and 2 interlock those things. Look at how God ends his zoom in on, on, his, on his masterpiece in, in Genesis 2. Look at Genesis 2, 22 through 25. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And look at verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. I mean, once again, you have creation and purpose intersecting here. You you have form and, and, and function. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave... To his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So you have to have male and female for that to happen. To fulfill the God-given mandates of Genesis 1 and 2, and to have a biblical marriage, you, you, you have to have a man and a woman, male and female, to cleave and to become one flesh. And people will argue, well, people of the same sex can cleave and, and they can become one flesh and perverse ways, but, but, but they're unable to fulfill creation's mandates, which is to be fruitful and multiply. And they're unable to, to be image bearers of God and unable to accomplish many other things that, that are there. That's exactly right. In fact, their created purpose is for this. Notice it says, for this reason, verse 24, for this reason. What reason, Moses? For the reason... For this reason, God made them male and female. And it's the unique differences between the two of them that, that, that's intimately designed. And it has to be that way for their, for their physical union to be fulfilled, for them to become one flesh. There's the sexual part. 
And it has to be that way for God's mandate for them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth with God's image. Remember, he created, he created Adam, and then from Adam he created Eve, and he created them to go together, both bearing God's image so that when they came together, they created another little image bearer, and then another little image bearer, and then they were to fill the earth with, with God's representatives, with, with image bearers. Now, of course, we have a problem after Genesis 3, don't we? We have the command to be fruitful and multiply, but when we do, when we are fruitful and multiply, we fill the earth with, with, little, with little marred image bearers. We fill the earth with sinners, which is why the gospel must be part of your, of your parenting. You, you and I now fill the earth with, with images of fallen atoms. And that's why the gospel is now the priority, even over your families, even over marriage. That's why 1 Corinthians 7 says that singleness for the kingdom is now an option and and it's even a preferred thing in in, in some cases. And why the the demands of the gospel or giving yourself to the gospel may mean that that, that you don't have children or you you restrict the the, the fruitful and multiplying. Being fruitful and multiplying is not helpful without the message of Christ because you're creating little sinners. And you can also clearly see God's intent for the re- unique roles by, by His commands in the New Testament. Think of it this way. Okay, you have God's design in Genesis 1 and 2. You, you have the effect of it, the, the reversal, and then the curse comes along and, and, the, and the consequence for, for smashing that original order and going in a different direction, the curse is you know, is a burden upon Adam's specific role, his commands that God gave him, and Eve's. And then you have the, the commands in the New Testament actually are given to counteract those things. They're given to counteract the fall. I mean, Satan wants husbands and, and wives to be at odds and battle one another, and that's part of the curse. But So God commands husbands to love their wives and wives to, to submit to their husbands. I mean... That's one of the ways you can interpret what's going on with that little word we talked about, desire, in Genesis 3. Her desire will be for her husband, and yet he will rule over her. What does that word desire mean? Well, well, you go to the commands of the New Testament, and you can see exactly what it means, because the commands of the New Testament are given to counteract the fall, to to keep us, to command us to to do something other than what what comes natural to us in in our fallen nature. You remember that from last Sunday night, that one of the ways that you can know that is this Genesis 3. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So, so God turns to the woman, and he announces her punishment here, the, the results of the fall, the curse. And the result will, will impact the woman's two primary roles, childbearing and following her husband, her marital relationship. The woman will now bear seed in painful labor, and her submission to her husband will be complicated, <laughs> to say the least, with an, on, with an ongoing battle. I mean, you can go to the opposite with, a, with, with Adam. Adam was given the, the task to, to work and to, to keep the garden and to tend, and, and now it would be toilsome labor. And he'll have the opposite bent toward, toward his wife. The commands of the New Testament counter the consequences of the fall. Turn to Ephesians 5. 
me show them to you. You know them, but hear them in light of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Ephesians 5. Here are the household passages. Ephesians 5, verses 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. Notice he goes back to creation. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands. Now he's speaking to a pagan culture primarily. These are Christians that have come out, to a, come out of a pagan culture. Or you can go to 1 Corinthians 11. Again, the, the, the passage there about... Uh, the roles of, of men and women, the head covering passage. And again, he goes back to creation. And he's speaking to a pagan culture that doesn't have uh, a Genesis mindset. What, what do they have? They have with the, the born, uh, inborn, innate desire to, to rule over their husband and to put their wives down or to, or to check out. And so now as they're Christians, God is, is reorienting them. He's telling them how you ought to, ought to behave, how you, how you can counteract. So he tells wives to be subject. Those commands are directed to a, a woman's propensity in the curse. And, and verse 25 is directed at the man's. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's not natural. It's not what men naturally do. They either trample their wives or they just forget it. You know, be, the, be however you want to be. I'm going to go fishing or hunting or whatever it is. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. They're one flesh. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh because they're one flesh, but nourishes and cherishes just as Christ also does his church because we are members of his bodies. Now watch this. Here, here's creation. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the, the two, male and female, shall become one. You see how that's rooted in creation and it's to counteract the fall? Do we need these commands? Ladies, do you need commands to submit to your husband, to subject yourself to your husband? Yeah, because it's unnatural. Men, do we need commands to lay down our lives for our wives? Yeah, a lot, because it's unnatural now that we live outside of the garden. And any concept other than that is a perversion. Singleness, not for the sake of the kingdom, but just because you don't want the responsibility of marriage or no children because you want to live your life for yourself and you know, want to travel or, 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 or whatever it is or reversal of roles, women leading men in marriage, men treating women with callous lovelessness, same-sex unions, I could, I could go on. Sadly, the list will grow. They're all perversions. They're all part of the fall. They're all ripples you know, when the... The boulder was dropped into the pond. And because the fall still reverberates, the list will grow and, until King Jesus comes. Let's get the third one. Third is the predominant perversion 
related to sexuality is the perversion of human sexuality. You look at Genesis 2, 24 and 25 again, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I mean, this passage tells us four things about human sexuality, at least. It says physical sexuality is part of the marital union. They shall be one flesh. It tells us that physical sexuality is restricted to the marriage covenant, for they shall cleave and they shall become one. That's where God intends sex to happen. Number three, physical sexuality is between a man and a woman. The man and his wife were both naked. And when it's done God's way, it's good. They're not ashamed. I mean, God's intent in creation is that sexuality be expressed where there are two committed people operating according to God's design and mandates in the covenant of, of marriage. I understand that sounds old hat to you, but, but, but that hat's been thrown out and trampled, and some people have never heard that before. That's why the New Testament says the marriage bed is undefiled before God. It's the marriage bed that's undefiled before, before God because of this verse right here. That's also why all other forms are perversions. and It's also why homosexuality is called a sin against nature. It's contrary to creation. What does that mean when Romans 1 says it's unnatural? I mean, of course, there are some sexual sins that that don't have to be unnatural biologically to, to be wrong, but, but what Paul means by, by that statement, it's, it's contrary to nature in Romans 1, is that, is that an attraction to the same sex and, and the actions of that attraction are contrary to the way that God created human beings. He didn't create them that way. That, that's part of the serpent's anti-wisdom. It's a reversal of creation's order at the highest level. It's an extreme manifestation of the, of the fall. I mean, pride leads to rebellion. Rebellion was based on self-love, not love for God. And homosexuality is the ultimate expression of self-love. You so, you're so in love with yourself, you're attracted to, to someone of the same gender. We've already been through it, but turn over to Romans 1. Here's a detailed description of, of how that plays out, how we got where we're at as a society. More precisely, it was because we removed God from our minds. I mean, the simple answer to sexual sin in all forms, not just homosexuality, is, is it's a result of the rejection of God. I mean, when mankind rejects the witness of God and attempts to remove him from their knowledge, the result is devastating. I mean, instead of appreciating and, and contemplating the glory of the Creator and all that He's made, human beings have rejected that splendor, Romans 1 says, and they've, they've turned to created things. The reversal. And Paul says that idolatry is where, it's the source of all immorality in the world. And when mankind intentionally rejects God over and over, God then gives them over to their own deeds and desires. 
Paul says that's how this wrath is, is being manifest even in our world right now. And we talked about it when we went through Romans 1. The structure is very easy to see. There are three ominous markers here. The phrase God gave them over is used three times, verse 24 and verse 26, verse 28. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. There's just the general immorality. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. There's homosexuality, and then in verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. So God gives people over to their immoral lusts initially, and they, and in verse 26, they're abandoned to their unnational, unnatural passions, and then in verse 28, they're broken minds. And that depraved mind just increases all three areas corporately. It's like an accelerant. Accelerant something that can bond or mix with another substance and increase the speed of the process. A broken mind without reason and righteousness increases all forms of sin. That's how you can have a man pretending to be a woman as the assistant secretary of health. And Paul says when you see a person or a society embrace sexual sin generally, homosexuality specifically, and reasoning that, that is ir- that reasoning that's irrational... That's a sure sign that God's patience has run out and he's turning them over to judgment. And Paul says, in God's wrath, he he removes his speed bumps to sin and that's a consequence of the rejection and he does that three particular ways here. And so Romans 1 starts with this rejection of truth that's around people, rejection of truth in creation and a rejection of truth inside the conscience, the law, it's written on the heart, and, and then the two of them play off of each other, and it drags the person deeper and deeper, and the more rebellion internally, the more that they reject the truth externally, and they seek contrary sources, and then they embrace those things more and more, and then they're turned over more and more to their desires until their desires become uncontrollable, and then they rule them. There's a lot of discussion even in evangelicalism, about the idea of same-sex attractions versus whenever you act on those uh, the attractions. Are those the same? No, they're not the same. Just the same way that, it's, that, that I, if I have an attraction to a female that's, of the, that's not my wife, that, that's a sinful attraction, but that's not equated to acting upon that. But those things are sin. That's what the Bible calls inordinate passions degrading passions or, or, or desires. So just because they're different doesn't mean that it's okay. You can have those temptations, and just like you can have the temptations to sin in, in, in other ways, that doesn't make you weird. It makes you a fallen sinner. But those desires are sinful. And those desires have to be, have to be slayed. They have to be put down. You, you have to have the, the, the benefits of the gospel in Romans that we're getting ready to come through, 5 and 6 and 7 and, and 8, just like any other sinner has to have that. But when you act, Romans 1 says, when you act on those, those inordinate desires, when you act on those immoral passions, heterosexually, homosexually, whatever they, they are, they, 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 they can become 
increasingly entangling. The deeper that you go, the farther that you get away from God's creative order, the more that, that, you, that you practice those things. The farther that you get away, the more, the more engrossing and the more entangling they, they can become and the harder it is to break free of them. And if you don't fight with the help of the Spirit, you, you can become in, in, engulfed. Just as sins are not equated in the Bible... What does Jesus mean whenever he says in the, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about lusting of a woman in the heart or being angry in your heart? There are people who say, well, that, see there, Jesus says if you're angry in your heart, it's just like killing somebody. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you're angry in your heart, you've broken the law, the law thou shalt not murder, because the impulse of anger is then manifested in murder. But he's not saying if you get angry with somebody, it, it's equated with murdering them. But he's saying that very desire is what breaks the law and separates you from, from God. And there are certain sins that are more entangling than, than others. The Bible calls certain things abominations to God and certain things transgressions and other things sin, falling short, and then iniquity that, that's in the heart. I mean, the Bible gives a full-orbed perspective of sin and how it comes out of us. and So you can't just level the playing field and say, well, you know, the forget the emerging church guy said, you know, um, sexual sin is just like being addicted to chocolate. It's, it's an addiction, you know, and that's the root of it. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Um, the Bible says that there are certain things that, that can entangle you. Take, for, exa- for example, drunkenness or, or drug addiction or others. There's a physical component that goes along with it. Um, and as you work through the sin in, in Romans 1, the deeper that you go... The farther you get away from creation, the more you can become engulfed. And then grievingly, outside of Christ, God can turn you over to those desires where there's no governor at all. And The wonderful thing about the gospel is no matter which of those errors you find swirling around in your life, gender expression or roles or sexuality, Jesus Christ is the one who can deliver you from from your sin. And his word was given so that you can reorient yourself and you can put to death those those desires that are there, which is what we we heard this morning. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6-9. We'll close in this way. This is also a passage that you know that you know well. It states the absolute clarity of sin and the glory of the gospel. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the the kingdom of God. God's bar is the same for all. And you'll not enter the kingdom practicing any of these sins. And here's the glory of the gospel. Such were some of you, past tense. Those things once marked your life, and now they don't. doesn't mean that you may not have temptations, but they no longer mark your life. 
and you were washed from them. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of, of God. This is a shuddering thought. But if everyone in here knew the sin that you have been engaged in at some point in your life, that would be a, that would be a shuddering thought, wouldn't it? You would probably find that even as you look around, the nice, squeaky, clean-looking folks that you have known as a Christian have cleaned up their lives, there's probably a lot of things in this list that they were at one point or committed at one point. And that's a good thing that you don't know that, frankly. I don't think that there's anything holy about going around and talking about all your sins and people knowing about the shameful things that you did. In fact, the Bible even says there are certain things we're not even to talk about because it's shameful. But what we should talk about and what we should shout from the rooftops is that Jesus Christ can make the vilest sinner clean. And he does. And then again, once he does, he takes us to the, the scriptures and gives us a new orientation for life. Now, in, in light of the time, here's what I would, I, I would like for you to do between now. I'm not going to ask you to, to state anything publicly. But what I'd like for you to do between now and when we, we have the Q&A, because we have a limited amount of time. We can have other Q&As, but I want to be particularly helpful on this specific topic while it's fresh in our minds. What I'd like for you to do is if you have a specific topic or specific question that I addressed and you want more or I didn't address or a specific application, what do I do here? How's a Christian supposed to handle this? Um, I want you to, to write that out and you can either drop that off since we don't have an office at the Welcome Center. Probably what would be more helpful is if you sent that in an email. Um, if you don't have email, then you can, just, you can just write it out. And next Sunday, because we're not talking about next Sunday night, remember we have a pizza fellowship next Sunday night. Then we have the family family gathering. Pizza fellowship next Sunday night's at 5 o'clock, so you come to church like you normally do, and we'll just we'll have pizza and fellowship together. And the next Sunday night is the family gathering when we'll do the Q&A. So we have two weeks. So next Sunday, if you don't have an email, write out whatever it is. You don't have to put your name on it. Just, just write out what, what you want to need to dress, give it to somebody in the Welcome Center, put it in an envelope, whatever you want to do, or better send, send an email. Um, you can say asking for a friend, whatever you want to say. Send it to the office at timberlakebaptist.org. And um, then I'll take all of those and see if there's specific categories that are there and then try to, try to address them. And then depending upon how many of those questions come in, I'll probably try to divide it up between half addressing questions that came in and the other half just free-for-all, whatever you want to, you know, whatever you want, want to ask. Because I know sometimes when you answer questions, another one pops in your head. Well, yeah, that's good. What about this? So anyway, hope my desire to be helpful for you. So again, between now and then, submit those questions. And if you don't get to do that, there should be a time for you to, to do that if you can, you know, ask for the mic and you're willing to ask the question, I'll, I'm willing to either say I have no idea or I'll try to answer it. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for the wisdom that you, that you give us. 
sanctified minds that come through the scriptures, studying the scriptures over and over and seeing how it all fits together and we still know we have really far to go. Lord, we, we, we want to help ourselves. We want to help other brothers and sisters. We want to help people around us. We want to help people we work with. We want to help people that are outside of Christ. So help us to be clear um, and uh, use our Q&A in these next couple of weeks to, to bring even greater clarity to us. We love you. We thank you for Jesus, for his blood. We thank you for your word. It's in his name we pray. Amen.